the first part is to awaken to the fact that we've been living in slumber, we've been in a fog, we've been conditioned, we've been brainwashed. Oh my goodness, the entire culture has sold us a lie. That's the first level of awakening, which is a shock. But then the real radical awakening is to take responsibility now for our own perpetuation of that paradigm, our own enslavement, our own co-creation. And that's where you really take the power back. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think hey, hey, I've always wanted Welcome to be a part of. To and better I wanted with to Dr. Be Stephanie. So it is me, your host, together. Dr. Stephanie Estima. Now, I am thrilled to bring you this conversation with my great friend, Dr. Shafali Sabari. So this is her second appearance on the Better Podcast. For my longtime listeners, you may remember her early uh, early on in the podcast. I believe she was episode four uh, or five on the pod. And we were talking at that time about conscious parenting, the awakened family. And I invited Dr. Shafali back onto the pod for a robust discussion for her new book, A Radical Awakening. Now, if you don't know who Dr. Shafali is, she received her doctorate in clinical psychology from Columbia University, and she really specializes in the integration of Western psychology and Eastern philosophy. And she really brings the best of both worlds into her private practice. She is an expert in family dynamics and personal development, and she's written four books, um, and three of them are New York Times bestsellers, including The Conscious Parent and The Awakened Family. And I have a feeling that this one is going to do, have such an impact on the world. Now, when you are listening to this conversation, uh, you will notice that it was recorded in front of a live audience. This was recorded in front of our Hello Betty members. So my Hello Betty membership is a monthly uh, membership and we talk about all things around female health. So we will talk about food and fitness and weight loss and sexuality and the female psyche. And this was such an incredible discussion. So a highlight around some of the things that we talked about, we talked about the lies that we learn as women around our own sexuality, the lies about motherhood, the lies about marriage and divorce. So you can already see that she just goes right there. <laughs> and then we talk about 
some of these different archetypes that we all bring in, in our development. So we talk about the givers. So people who um, are, you know, the martyrs and, you know, people who have victim consciousness. And she does really very elegantly distinguish between someone who actually is a victim versus someone who has a victim mentality. And then we talk about the controllers. You're looking at her. So the perfectionist, me? Never. Yeah. I'm the total, I'm the total perfectionist, the shield, the helicopter, she calls them. And she goes into a lot of detail around that. And then we talk about owning our vagina and owning our sexuality. And she talks about this in a way that I have discussed in in the past, but I have really never heard anybody else discuss it in this way. And she talks about these sexual dimorphisms between men and women. What makes us different? Why do we see men that we, you know, we, you know, maybe as a woman, we might get upset at a man with a wandering eye or Um, you know, who needs visual stimulation or what have you. So she talks about this difference. She talks about this in the context of our patriarchal society, which can at some times be toxic. And we talk about the divine masculine, you know, the seed and the divine, the divine feminine, you know, the soil. And these are, of course, gender agnostic. So we are not necessarily talking about certain genders. Of course, we know that um, there is a fluidity um, to gender in in many cases. So this is not a, a conversation around gender. It is a conversation around sexual dimorphisms, which are more clearly defined, you know, in, um, in our, in the population. So we talk about that and I have to tell you, quite honestly, this conversation, this book, I div- I was lucky enough to have a an advanced copy of this book, and I just devoured every sentence. I told her, I don't know if I said this to her on the podcast or maybe in a text, you know, and we were texting back and forth, and I think I made seventy pages of notes on her <laughs> on her book, and I believe the book is about five hundred pages. So it was such an excellent book, my favorite book written this year, other than my own. So I honestly, this is right up there at the top. I mean, my book is The Betty Body is all about women reclaiming their metabolic health and their physiological health. This is the perfect companion to The Betty Body in that it allows women and teaches women how to reclaim and empower their psyche. You are going to absolutely love the book. I highly recommend. And if you can, I have never been so excited for a book other than my own. I highly recommend that you pick up her book. It is called A Radical Awakening. And we are releasing this podcast in the week that it is being released. So if you are hearing this, it is going to be available at all online bookstores, in-house bookstores, if those bookstores are open where you reside. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Dr. Shafali Savari. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, 
you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water, and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Shafali Sabari, my friend, my colleague, I am so thrilled to welcome you back to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. I am so excited too. And we are recording this podcast live inside our Hello Betty uh, membership. It's our female collective where we talk about all things fuel and fitness and the female psyche and the divine feminine, all of those things we are going to get into um, today. And I was saying just in the pre-chat before this part of the podcast before we started rolling that other than my book, this is my favorite book that I have read in a really, really long time. And I really hope that this is the beginning of a a movement and a transcendence for female health and well-being and empowerment because it is like the things that we're going to talk about today are the things that you know I in all transparency I dream about you know teaching and talking about because it is so powerful for us to be taking back our power. Yes, yes it is. Thank you. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. Yeah. So we're, we're going to kind of get into each of the pieces. We're going to talk about the lies around marriage and the lies around, uh, you know, our sexuality and what it means to be a, a woman and some of the, some of the stories that we tell ourselves that keep us from being, um, you know, powerless or taking away our power. But before, before we get into that, I wanted to start at the beginning of the book and you talk about this idea of, um, so, uh, so, erosion. Um, and it sounds like, you know, soil erosion, which I don't know if that was intentional, but I thought it was very clever. So let's, let's, can you begin to elaborate on what you mean by soul erosion and how it shows up in, in the everyday life of a woman? So in this book, A Radical Awakening, I talk about this idea, as you just mentioned, of how our soul erodes every time we betray it. And we women, especially as young girls, have been conditioned to abnegate that true inner authentic power for the sake of getting love and approval and validation from the outside. So because we are trained that way in a very subtle but profound, unconscious, conditioned way, we do it automatically and robotically. So all through the years, we keep you know, avoiding our truth, keep um, distancing ourselves from what it is we know and keep absconding and keep pretending like, oh, we don't know, or let somebody else lead the way, or I care more about the other than I care about myself. And we create this narrative of, you know, giving away this power consistently. And each time we do so, we betray ourselves. And each time we do that, we erode our authentic voice. So I talk about that kind of process of soul erosion, where one day you end up typically when your kids are grown and flown, if you're a mom or in your midlife crisis, and you realize that you don't know who you are. I mean, I haven't met a single woman worth her salt who hasn't had that epiphanic moment of 
who the hell am I and how did I get so lost? Yeah. And you talk about this idea of, you know, becoming some of the, you know, symptoms, if you will, of this soul erosion are things like chronic exhaustion and eat, you know, various eating disorders and listlessness, apathy, you know, confusion, self-loathing and lethargy. And I think that, you know, when I was reading the list, I was like, God, there's so many women that are going to relate to this because as you said, when the children are grown and flown, we, we are forced to ask ourselves like, okay, who, am I like what and what is it that I really want you know because we may have spent years giving uh, to other people in 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 different capacities so and I think that you know again with the soul erosion it's the erosion as you were saying of our of our true self and we replace it with some of these strategies that we've developed along the way you know being and we'll talk about some of the archetypes but like the martyr and the you know and the shield and all of these you know the perfectionist and the you know the helicopter mom and all of these things but it really when it comes down to it is a and maybe you can correct me here but it read like this was a protection in some way of the ego um and is there, can you explain maybe the interplay between the ego and the strategy that we do, de- these egoic strategies that we develop and this soul erosion? Yes, yes. So because we're conditioned to give up that power very young, uh, our true self when we're young, which we do have to some modicum, uh, gets denied. So imagine yourself as a young girl, you know, eager to be big and fulfill herself, whether in a shy way or an assertive way, but you were so ready to be real. And then slowly through the messaging you got, all the shoulds and the dictates and mandates of your parents and then religion and then education and then one institution after the other, parenting, you kept checking off those boxes and each time you were thinking that when I check that box off, then I can be myself and then I'll get love. But it doesn't work like that. And soon you on this conveyor belt of just endless churning, looking for that love and worth. So what happens to us psychologically when we are denied our true self as, as a young child is that we have to create a way to get worth because the true self isn't getting worth. The true self is being told, shh, or be quiet, or you're too loud, or you're too this, or you're too that, be this way. So now what does the, the child do in order to adapt? So the child says, okay, one route is I'll be exactly what my parents want me to be. And many girls go that route and become obedient and servile and like little automatons. Then the other girl comes along and goes, I'm not going to do that. And so she becomes a badass and she gets called the bad child and she gets into trouble and she's told she's too loud. And then another one comes and goes, well, you know, maybe I'll get love by being a comedian. And another one shuts down and becomes depressed and anxious. So we all find our way, depending on our temperament to actually get the love and worth it's in weird and ironic ways and those ways are the masks we begin to put on to obtain our goal of love and worth and those masks are called the masks of the ego so they're prototypes and of course they're always nuances but they're typical prototypes that I describe in the book yeah And I think that there, you know, when we talk about this in the context of little girls, when we add on the layer of what it's like to be a woman in a very, 
you know, patriarchal society and, and often, oftentimes a very toxic uh, patriarchal society. You talk about this idea of we develop these strategies so that we can now learn how to be worthy, right? Like you were saying, like the comedian is going to be funny and that's the attention that she's going to get. There's going to be someone who's going to be the academic and that's how she's going to get her attention. But the other thing that I thought was interesting was this idea that as women, we learn to take the blame and take the responsibility when we see, for example, men behaving badly, like, a, you know, a, um, let's say, you know, and you talk about this very openly in your book, you know, um, family members, you know, both men and women who made inappropriate comments to you about your skin tone, you know, your eye color, and you we're like, okay, well, how am I going to be, you know, you can't do much about your skin color really, uh, or your eye color, but how are you going to modify your behavior to, in order to retrieve and in order to get this love from them? And I think you said something profound. It was, um, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like when, when you take the blame for, let's say, you know, your mother's saying, oh, well, you're, you're pretty now, but one day you're, you know, you're just going to be old and wrinkly or whatever she had said or, you know, um, an uncle or, you know, a male figure who is touching you or whoever inappropriately. What we do when we take that responsibility is we don't allow the other person to see how they've behaved incorrectly and how they can begin to take responsibility for their actions. And then that just continues to propagate, right? We allow things like sexual, inappropriate sexual comments. We allow things like inappropriate um, boundary infringement. We've talked about that inside uh, Hello Betty around time boundaries, physical boundaries. If you're in a relationship, what sexual boundaries might look like. But as women, we generally are like, well, you know, that's how it is, you know, just being a woman in this, in this world. So I, I wanted to, you know, as we're kind of like getting into and getting closer to the archetypes, talk a little bit about the difference between blame and responsibility. Because what I see with women is we all blame ourselves and we all take responsibility, but really teasing apart the, what those two constructs mean and how we can show up differently uh, in order to help other people grow. Yeah, beautiful. So because like you said, we grow up in this fog, it's like a fog. It's like the air we breathe. It's in the milk we suckle when we're infants. It's in every messaging, which is basically to be good. And girls especially have that predominant archetype. And we, because by nature, our biological nature is to be givers and nurturers and caretakers. I mean, we're designed, our body's designed to give. That, that good girl becomes the curse. And we don't know that we are even being brainwashed to be a certain way. We think that that's the only way we should be. And uh, so in doing that, we allow for a, a complete absence of will, voice, governance, direction, and therefore make it quite easy for absolute invasion to occur, right? Invasion of the psyche, invasion of the body, invasion of our ideas around our morality, all of it. And because somewhere deep down the true self knows it's being invaded, but doesn't know how to negotiate it because it's being silenced, 
what comes about instead of the true self expressing itself is a further blame. So because the true self feels this like, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, but it's in conflict with the good girl archetype. So then it flips it to, well, then you are wrong. So this is happening because of you. So again, the good girl works against us because we are trying to be so amazing. We take all that blame and we don't understand that the true responsibility is to place responsibility accurately. But we don't learn that. We've never learned that because we've been told that in order to be good, we are the container uh, and the vessel and the reciprocal, uh, the re reciprocal um, bearers of all the, the toxicity from those around us. To put it back on someone else, to allow them to feel discomfort, to possibly deal with conflict is something so much of a curse in our conditioning that it takes us a lot of courage to speak up. So years pass by, decades pass by where people are dumping their stuff on you. And only later you wake up to realize that you were the co-creator of that because you never were taught how to have a boundary, how to say I'm worthy enough to not receive your toxicity. I mean, we literally thought receiving toxicity was a pathway to goodness, therefore a pathway to love and worth. So we did it with open arms. What a wrong messaging. So this book is about transforming that entire message. It should never have been there in the first place because our entire life is now fighting that, you know? Yeah. And this good girl complex that you talk about is, you know, for uh, readers who are going to go and buy the book, the book is called The Radical Awakening, by the way, and you can buy it anywhere. And I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. You talk about this idea, and I think every single woman listening to this can relate that there's some part of us that looks to the outside for a, for a reflection of our worth. We look for that external validation. Am I giving enough? Am I loving enough? Am I nice enough? Am I the good girl? Am I smart enough? Am I competent enough? Am I pretty enough? Like all the things, right? And I I I love. I love how you frame this because it may, you know, when you're reading it, you're like, oh my God, like that, I've totally done that. I've totally been, you know, completely attached to what other people think of me. But the other sort of flip side of it, like you, you just mentioned this, is that once we realize that we have been enslaving ourselves, well, we also have the key, right? We have the lock and the key. So we can also free ourselves and liberate ourselves to, um, to sort of unhitch, if you will, unhitch that external need for, um, for validation and begin to you know, take responsibility for everything in our lives and begin to change. Yes, it's so hard to look in the mirror. I call this book a radical awakening intentionally because the first part is to awaken to the fact that we've been living in slumber, we've been in a fog, we've been yeah. conditioned, we've been brainwashed. Oh my goodness, the entire culture has sold us a lie. That's the first level of awakening, which is a shock. But then the real radical awakening is to take responsibility now for our own perpetuation of that paradigm, our own enslavement, our own co-creation. And that's where you really take the power back. You know, it's one thing to be invaded by the toxic patriarchy. It's one thing to be oppressed by it. And we are. 
But the real awakening will not come simply in saying that, you know, toxic patriarchy, bad men, or, you know, even putting them back in their place. That's only a piece of the work because that still has to do with them. The real work has to untether from anything on the outside and truly take that power back by looking at all the ways we have given that power, right? So how do you take power back? Not just by being badass and strong and tattooing yourself, that's just external. True power gets taken back when you look at your life piece by piece and go, oh, I just gave my power there, mm, taking it back. Now that is the radical awakening and it's really hard to do, really hard to do. It means that for us women to take ownership at this level, okay, you ready? When we wear our stilettos, those really uncomfortable stilettos, <laughs> we cannot fool ourselves that we're doing it for ourselves. We cannot do that. <laughs> yes. It's like, we cannot say it's it makes compliments. Me <laughs> we need to say, I feel happy when I get compliments and I get compliments when I wear stilettos. That's honest. You see? And this level of brutal honesty is a place we don't want to go to. But 2020 and the pandemic has shown us women how we love being in our sweats. No bra, no makeup. We're so happy. So what happens to us when we go outside for a party? Now, of course, we all want to look sexy, but we have to own that we want to look sexy, not just because it, it feels good on one level. It's because there's another level, because we like the attention. Because at home, our partners are like, can you look sexy? Can you please look sexy at home? And we're like, no, it's the pandemic. I'm who I am and this is what I wear. So at home, we're one way where we're truly authentic because there's no external validation. But what happens the minute we go out? You know, many husbands will complain, right? And not that they have a right to complain and not that I'm agreeing with them, but it's just, they will observe the inconsistency and they'll be like, I'm at home all day and I don't get this, you know, fancy outfit and I don't get the, the uncomfortable stilettos. I get the sweatpants and the, 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 the no combed hair, right? So, and that's really the authentic part of us, the part of us at home, but we don't carry that part outside because now it's the external world. And we have to notice the two splits in us. How are we when we're completely on our own and how are we in front of people? And that's where we have to take our power back. That's so good. And, and I think that it's, uh, to your point, I think it's really hard to take responsibility or to say everything that's happened exactly where I am right now, I'm taking responsibility for all of it. And that doesn't mean, you know, as a point of clarification, that doesn't mean that you are letting people who have maltreated, like have, you know, treated you poorly or, you know, done, you're not letting them off the hook, but you, it, this is not like a, I'm just, you know, going to forgive everyone and it's all going to be fine, but you are going, you're taking responsibility for everything that you are right now and becoming and committing to becoming aware of the stories um, that you're telling oh, yeah. yourself and that you have internalized. Yeah, I just want people to understand that there, you know, sometimes the narrative gets skewed to exactly what you were saying, that women feel the burden to just kind of do it all on their own and as if they haven't been victims. And that's why I said the first level is to recognize there is such a thing as oppression against women. There is such a thing as a toxic patriarchy. There is such a thing as being a victim, but we're talking about victim consciousness. And that's where the shift occurs. Crap happens to us out there. 
and to young girls and to all of us in the workplace and in all different ways. So there's no denying the naming of the toxicity, but then it's what we do with that toxicity in our consciousness and how we do not in any way fail to recognize the ways that we subtly or unsubtly perpetuate it perpetuated, how we talk to our daughters, how we talk to ourselves when we look in the mirror, how we objectify ourselves, you know? So yes, culture objectifies us, but now we've internalized that objectification. We're the ones looking at the, the wrinkle right here that nobody else can notice and how our earlobe touches the jaw, which nobody is noticing, right? We're doing that to ourselves. So this continued perpetration is where we are in victim consciousness. And that's where we have the power to elevate and change. And I think it's worth noting that that's what, that's what the patriarchy wants. They want us to internalize these messages so that we continue, so they can continue to sell us shit, right? So that they continue to, so we have to still, you know, we have to buy the, you know, the, the, the thing that's going to, the wrinkle cream, that's going to fix the eye that we're going to, you know, have the clothes, like the clothing or the trend to jour or whatever, because if we, if we detach ourselves from that, if we actually like ourselves, you know, that's not a really great uh, business uh, yes. you know, it, it's not a great business. Like you can't it's make money a, off someone who likes themselves. <laughs> right. Not a good business model. You know, happy world doesn't make for a capitalist world. So that is the core message. And each time you flip through a magazine, I know I have to do this and I want to buy every cream that promises eternal youth and skinny dim in two seconds. You know, I want to buy it. I'm like, I want to buy it. I want to buy it. But then I have to remember level one of radical awakening, which is to be aware that this cultural matrix is here to subjugate us through endlessly making us feel like crap, right? So, and there's no end and we can see it now with the products available and the technology available. You know, there's just no end to what you can buy to look eternally skinny and youthful. And this is the trap that we fall in because there's no such thing as eternal youth or eternal anything. And, but, but we're playing right into it. And then we're upset with ourselves when we're not eternally youthful because there's no such thing. So we're being sold a lie, but then we buy into it. And then we're upset when we don't meet that goal. But mm -hmm. we women do it to ourselves. I really wanna talk about, and I know you, you may get to it later, but just briefly, the sisterhood and the importance of us being sisters, you know, because, you know, we'd all be quite happy to go to drop the kids off in the morning in our pajamas. But that one mother who shows up all dressed up ruins it for everybody. Right. She's like she and then you're like, see, see, now I have to dress up tomorrow. Everyone's laughing, by the way. I can see right. everyone. I mean, like, I know who that is. Like that one mother. We'd all be OK going without makeup. But then when that sexy woman comes and all the men are looking at her, you're like, oh, damn, see, now all my insecurities have, ri have risen up and I'm not going to do this again. So I have one day at my conferences where I make all women not wear makeup and I, I make us pledge to each other because we have to be a sisterhood. Now, if all of us could pledge that we'd gra gracefully own our age and not do these enormous murderous things to our bodies, we could all let go and but we have we can only do it if we believe each other like if one is going to sneak and go and put some mascara then then we're all going to be insecure because we have to own that we're insecure okay we have to all own that we get dressed the way we do because we're insecure so we wear the t-shirt i'm insecure and then we all help each other to not combust that insecurity 
You know, if now that, that woman has like boobs that are like so high up under her chin and yours are down to your knees, you're going to feel some type of way about yourself. And you know, they're not real. You know, they're not real. So you're like, you broke the contract. You know, now you're making me feel like crap. Now, of course, she isn't making you feel like crap, but we all are insecure as per yep. the teacher. So we have to help each other by showing up as close to natural as possible. Listen, now I wore eye makeup today and I kind of comb my hair, right? So I'm part of this. There's no, I am part of the insecurity. I have many t-shirts that say I'm insecure, but let's at least begin there, right? Let the woman who's in that push-up bra, wearing the uncomfy stilettos and has the butt implants, please have on her chest, I'm insecure. So that the rest of us who look at her and want to be like her go, oh, poor thing, she's insecure. Let's not pretend she's secure. See, this is the delusion, right? That's not security. That is insecurity. And men kind of know it, but they're just letting us go ahead, believing that we're confident. That's confidence. Yeah, that's a confident woman who has butt implants. They know that that's complete insecurity, but here we are, you know, parading for them and playing into the patriarchy. I love everything you're saying. And I think that um, sisterhood is really important. I think that we've been taught to be wary of each other and be competitive with each other. Like that girl is going to, Shafali's so good looking. She's going to, if she wanted to, she could take my man. I got to be that's careful it. of her, you know? That's it. That's yeah. it. That if we can just own that we want to compete, first that we want to compete, A, because we're insecure, but then the second most befuddling reason it's because we want to hold on to our men. Now, I'm not putting the men down, but have you seen the men in their 50s? Are they looking amazing? I mean, I'm like, what men are you trying to hold on to? Like, hold on to your guy, but like, he's not that hot. Like, he's not like so fit. Like, what are we holding on to? So here's the thing. We have been conditioned to be competitive because we're insecure and we've been raised to compete for men, which is the most lunatic thing we can do really in the animal kingdom the men are competing for the females the males are competing but in the human kingdom women are competing and the males are having a great time with us competing because they like, compete compete each one of you are you know out competing the other but we have to let go of this idea of ownership you know we do not own these men as much as they don't own us Right. So if we don't want them to own us, here's how we play into the patriarchy in the subtle self derogatory way. Right. We're trying to own them. But in our owning them, we're killing ourselves and our bodies when they want to own us. They just, you know, own us. You know, they're not going to the gym 24 seven like we are and wearing fake lashes. I don't see it. Do you? So they just get to own us because that's the patriarchy. But when we want to own them, we do all these things to our bodies and our soul. So we have to let go the idea of ownership both ways. It's a, it's a modern phenomenon, this idea of ownership and possession and marriage perpetuates it. And so the minute you think of your husband as mine, just like I talk about in conscious parenting, if you think of your children as yours, now you're going to get caught up in a cycle of a lot of emotional trouble. 
So let, let's talk about the lies of motherhood and the lies of uh, divorce. So we talk marriage. a lot. Marriage and ma- divorce or motherhood? Marriage and divorce, divorce sorry. Okay. Yes. So you talk in your book, you talk about, um, you know, your own awakening, your own growth through your divorce. And I, you know, when I look at, when I look at divorce, for example, when I went through my own divorce after a lot of grieving, a lot of, cr- I was very painful, but at the, on the other side of it, I was like, why isn't this a celebration? Like, why isn't this you know, cause you can, when I first was, you know, telling people I was separated and we're going to get divorced, I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I, I remember feeling like, no, this is, this is a good thing. Like we are two people. Yes. We have children together, but we're, you know, better off this way. Like what would be more sad would be if we were together for the next 50 years, knowing that we weren't a good match (laughs) and sticking it out anyway. And so I remember thinking like divorce should be, you know, a bit of a, it should be a celebration, but it isn't. So let's talk a little bit about some of the lies around marriage and and divorce. And maybe you can speak a little bit about your own experience that you talk about with how you really put uh, your daughter first and foremost. So just before I begin, you know, a lot of my work around parenting and now awakening in general has to really do with the lies that culture has sold us because culture lives primarily in the dimension of fear and lack and scarcity. That's really important to understand that all through the institutions of our lives, there is a pervasive sense of lack and scarcity. And you can give me any institution and I will show you how. You can think of the religious institution. It is predicated on suffering, on sin, on guilt, on lack, on scarcity. Take education, competition, achievement, competence, lack, scarcity. Okay, so coming to marriage. So parenthood, uh, all my work in parenthood showed people that parents were raising themselves, raising their, their children based on how they were raised. And that was based on lack and scarcity. And they were making their children fulfill all their unfulfilled dreams. So now come to marriage. <clears throat> we have to understand marriage is an institution that is a modern day institution. It didn't exist for centuries for eons. It it came into fruition with the advent of the agricultural revolution when man, so to speak, human, uh, decided to control land and bring it under his ownership and domesticate animals and along with it, women and children. And marriage became the contract. It was first a social contract. Then it became this so-called love contract. Whatever it is, it's a contract. Anything that begins with a contract is already steeped in a whole load of conditional fear. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a contract, correct? So it's a contract of transaction. It's transactional. No problem in it being a contract, but let's not pretend it's not a contract as we pretend it's not. So then you are in this contract, you've entered this contract. What is this contract basically predicated on? It's predicated on a longevity model, right? 
the longer you stay together, the more points, I don't know where, probably in heaven or in social uh, currency, right? Oh my God, they've been together for 80 years, right? Never mind, they sleep in other ends of the room. One sleeps in the basement bathroom, one sleeps on the roof. It doesn't matter as long as you're together, right? So please just- And the presents together. get better too. The longer you're together, the yes. presents get better, yes. right? So you, you get diamonds with- at 50. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The diamonds and sapphires and all that only come later. First, it's just wood and pebbles. Yeah. <laughs> so the anniversary gifts get better because you're being praised and reinforced for sticking it, sticking it in there. Right. Marriage is compromise. You know, life is compromise. You think marriage is just a, you know, bed of roses. So we've been sold this idea of our life that it needs to be stuck through and it's hard work. And it's like this real pathos around life and marriage. And, you know, you got to compromise and sacrifice. Okay, no problem. Now you're in this marriage and eternity is the theme. Eternal youth, eternal money, eternal wealth, eternal life and eternal marriage. And it is because we have this inability to live in the present moment and to live with impermanence that we have now pervaded the marriage institution with the same ideas of eternity. So um, that is why divorce is so stereotypically frowned upon because marriage is based on longevity. So anything that breaks that contract is uh, an anathema, a curse, a failure, a shame. And when you understand that the marriage model is in itself full of lies and illusions, then you transform the divorce paradigm for yourself. No one is going to do it for you because most of culture is steeped in the longevity model. It isn't steeped in the consciousness model, in the growth model, in the evolution model, because that model is too scary, you know, because people will be leaving each other very quickly, which is okay. And it's normal for humans to move on. And if we had the right consciousness around the marital institution, we would have the right consciousness around the divorce institution. The reason why divorce is so effed up today is because the marriage model is based on ego, ownership, possession, control. You're signing a contract. You break the contract, you're evil. Now, in the divorce, I have a right to be angry with you. And now I'm going to be really upset because I thought I owned you. You see, it all is a ripple effect starting from a false premise. We're starting wrong, right? And and the priests and the whatever, the gurus or whoever's, you know, presiding over your unionship, watching two ignorant 20-year-olds making promises for life, they should stop it right there and go, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. You, so just reframe. You don't even know who you are. You don't even know who you are. Are you married to yourself? Do you know who you are? Say five good things about you right now. And they won't be able to, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just being sold on, on romantic movies and the idea of eternity. And really they should be told, do not make a vow beyond this moment. So just say, I vow that I only know what I know right now. Now that's an honest vow. What are you saying vows for 30 years in the future? So anyway, all of us keep doing it. Then we buy the big ring. Then we show off the ring. Then we like to be called Mrs. and Mr. And those things give us a sense of closeness. So when the man doesn't give you the ring or your partner doesn't give you the ring, you think they're not committed to you. I mean, we have such bizarre ideas around commitment and honesty and true unionship. It's based on these 
milestones that culture has told us. If the person doesn't marry you, apparently they don't love you. So now you've got to get married, you know? True love has I nothing- I think Beyonce, to- Beyonce wrote a song about that, right? It's like, exactly. if you like it, you should have put a ring on it. Yes, yeah, so we teach our daughters this- Sorry to say, I love that song, but it's kind of nonsense (laughs) because you're teaching the child and the girl to depend on something on the outside and be afraid to break it. So the person cannot live organically, cannot live honestly, because now they're bound by a contract. So imagine the poor good girl, the poor good girl, which you were and I was at one point, (laughs) way back. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. It was torture for us to think about breaking this contract. Oh my goodness. And then we're mothers. So the pressure on us to maintain the contract is so heavy that often we work against our authentic spirit and the soul keeps eroding. And then you hit midlife. That's why I said grown and flown. When your kids leave the house, then you realize, okay, now who am I truly? And then you begin to realize whether you do have a true partnership, is this a model for growth and evolution? Or has this died? And there's no harm in things dying. All of nature dies. We shouldn't be afraid of death and old age and stagnancy. Stagnancy is part of the next rebirth, but we've been taught to be so afraid of it because of that contract. It's so interesting you say that as you're you're talking about, you know, as mothers, I remember one of the most heart-wrenching emotions I had to wrestle with was how is this going to impact my children? You know, I'm, I said, I'm breaking their heart. I'm splitting up their family. And I remember um, talking to a, a, a coach of mine at the time when I was like, what should I do? What's the, you know, and he, he said something like, um, you know, imagine in 20 years, you know, 25 years, your son comes to you and says, I've been, I'm, I'm with this girl. I'm not happy. Um, but we've been together for so long. What should I do? You know, we've tried all the avenues to like work it out. And I said to my coach, well, I would tell my son that if it's not working, you have to pursue your happiness. You have to pursue the thing that brings you joy. And so my coach, brilliant as he is, but at the time it felt like a knife, a dagger in my heart. He's like, well, how can you give him that advice if you yourself are unwilling to take it? And I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. And I think that as, as mothers, we agonize over, you know, if you have, if you have children in the mix and your marriage is not, you know, the way that uh, you would like it to be, or that you would have, what you hoped it would be, you know, whether that's the delusion from society or just the interpersonal dynamics, I think that um, 
at the end of the day, and at least I'm telling my, this might be a delusion as well, but I'm telling myself that at the end of the day, my kids want to see me happy. My kids want to see their mother and father happy. And I have a great relationship with their father now at the time, you know, when we were splitting up, as you might imagine, not so great, but um, he's happy now. Like he's a great, like we're fr- like, he's a great guy. We are just not, we are not meant to be together. Um, so yeah, I just, I wanted to share that with you because I, and I hope that in sharing that with any, anyone who's listening, um, that your children, you know, to stay together for your children puts a lot of pressure on your kids. Like it's, it's really, uh, unfair in a way to say, well, I'm going to do it for the kids because then the kids see this model of a relationship that may or may not be toxic, but obviously not something that's uplifting and abundant for the, the person who's thinking of leaving. And that's what they end up modeling too. Like that's that epi, you know, you talk about epigenetic, you know, uh, transfer, like changing of our genes. Like they are also going to propagate and repeat that problem if you don't break it. Yeah. Yeah. So kids will be affected because of the culture, but I think more than kids wanting to even see us happy, kids just don't want to be burdened with the toxic fallout. So the more we can do it, in an adult way, without conflict, business-like, matter of fact, which no two egos can ever do. But if the more we keep them out of it, sure, there's a blip, sure, there's a little bit of a transition, but the more the adult toxicity doesn't spill into the child, the more the child will be free. And this is across the board, even if you stay together for the rest of your lives, but you're spilling toxicity into them through even your expectations about their lives, that's what makes children feel the burden. You know, children actually don't even maybe care about us being happy. They just don't want to be unhappy themselves. Like, don't put it on me. Like, you do what you need to do, cry. Just don't, I don't need to know about it. You know, kids are like, you know, and if you can own, I'm crying today. I'm crying all day today, okay? So let me cry. If you tell your kid, your kid is like, okay, cry. You know, kids are very much like live and let live. Just don't make them feel burdened or responsible to fix it or to take care of it. You know, I I think that kids should see us cry if we're crying, you know? But if we're okay with it, if we're falling apart, then then that's going to evoke all anxiety in them, you know? So when I went through the hard part of the hard part, I just said, we're going through the hard part of the hard part. We're in a piece of in a, in a, in a dark space, in a tunnel, you know, um, we're in it. So we're going to get through it, but it's, it's not fun right now. So just wait, it'll pass, but we're here now, you know, and I'm really sorry that I'm making you go through it, but I know that we can go through it. So again, it's about our ownership of the shadow and not placing all this burden to be fixed on our children and not placing the burden to be Pollyanna happy on ourselves, you know, no, life is life. Relationships are difficult, you know? Yeah, your dad and I didn't get along as we thought and we didn't grow together as we thought, but we loved each other at one point. It was well-intentioned. You had good intentions and it is what it is. There is no perfect relationship. You know, use it as a moment to tell your kid, there is no perfect relationship. There is no perfect destiny. There's no perfect body. There's no perfect face. Yeah, life sucks at times and we go through it. I love it. 
Let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the lies around sexuality. You talk about some of the sexual dimorphisms between men and women. And I thought that this was so juicy, uh, I think. And this is why I think everybody needs to needs to read it. So one of the one of the premises, as you know, in my book is that women are not little men. Right. So we operate on a different cadence. We have menstrual cycles. We have different anatomy, all of that. And we'll talk about owning your vagina. I definitely want to go there. But just before we do, I think that it's also important to recognize that men are not bigger versions of women. <laughs> you know, like we have different, um, you know, sexual appetites. There's different neurological hardwiring. Um, and I think that, you know, you talk about some of these differences as a way to, hopefully impart some understanding, you know, when, for example, you talk about in the book, um, you know, men are very visually stimulated, you know, sometimes, you know, women will get upset if they see, you know, they're with their, you know, guy, um, you know, walking down the street, let's say, and then he might see a woman that he deems attractive and he'll look at her and, you know, a woman might be like, oh my God, what a pig. Like, I can't, like, I'm right here, but the way that you deconstruct this is that men are just much more visual creatures, you know, for, for women, you know, the foreplay, I, and I, I've often joked about this, where like the foreplay for us is like all day long. Like you do the dishes for us and you do all these other, that's foreplay. But for a guy, it's, you know, it's the visual stimulus is very, very, um, you know, we'll call it enticing. So I wanted to, you know, give you the platform to talk a little bit about some of these differences, these sexual dimorphisms in our sexuality and our sensuality between men and women and how some of the constructs that you talk about in the book can help us better understand if we're in a heterosexual relationship, our, our male partners. Right. So let's just preface that this is a heterosexual conversation. Yes. but not to diminish same-sex relationships, but because I'm not in a same-sex relationship, I've cho chosen to just focus on the heterosexual relationship. So please no offense to people who don't find resonance here, but there may be something uh, interesting to pick up. So I think one of my greatest awakenings was to realize exactly what you just said, that women are not little men and men are not big women. I don't think in my youth, and I certainly didn't learn this in school, at how different we are. And I know it sounds so simple, but if we really understood how different we are, A, I don't think we'd spend the rest of our lives together willingly, so happily, oh, let's get married. No, we would really like think about it. It's like putting lions and bears together. I mean, we're so different, okay? In the way we're wired, in our ambitions, and the most important place in our sexuality, you know? So when men say, you know, they need to eat, but they mean they need to have sex, and we get very upset, like, what do I look like, a piece of meat? Uh, yes, to them at that point of their hunger, they do. But we get angry, right? Because we're like, you're so crude. You're so not poetic. You you know, how are you talking to me? You know, well, what do I look like to you? Just some means to an end. And I spent years being offended at comments like that. It took me a long time to understand that for men, many men, not all, many men, their sexuality is a core physical need. So I denied, I mean, if my ex-husband hears this, I hope he doesn't, but 
I, I, because I'm taking some responsibility and I don't want to right now. Um, I denied him so many times saying that he's a baby and he's got no control and he should just go take care of himself. And what do I look like to you? You know, you're, you know, your handmaid, right? So I, I was terrible, but it's okay. I've justified it and I'm moving on. Um, but I now realize that this was a core physical need that I didn't realize was as important as me having pregnancy cravings for, you know, donuts in matcha ice cream in the middle of the night. And just like I wanted him to honor me, I was not honoring him. So I say all this not to condone men and certainly not to allow them to touch us up wherever they want and to rape us. I say this to help us women understand what we're doing when we pair bond with a male who has a high sexual desire. It is going to be creating conflict if you don't have the same high sexual desire as they do. And most women typically, if you compare across the board, have different desires. We are desires for connection. Their desire is for orgasm, okay? They want to consummate. We want to cuddle. They're just like, can we move on? We've, we've watched this movie already and we've had the candlelight dinner. All men, most men, okay, I won't say all, heterosexual men will understand what I'm saying. And we women don't get it. So when we don't get it, now there's suffering when he looks at porn or he looks at another woman or he wants you to dress up like, uh, you know, uh, a high school student. You're so offended. Now, again, I'm not condoning this. I'm just trying to understand it. Where is it coming from? I'm not saying it's okay. And I'm not saying it should be allowed without consciousness. I'm saying understand it's a predominant male sexual experience. And we women have a different sexual experience. We make love to connect, right? They connect for the goal of consummation. Very different agendas. And they're biologically wired for that agenda. And we're biologically wired for our agenda. You know, our bodies are receivers and our milk comes from our breasts and our vaginas are wide openings that receive. To put it simply, we are givers and nurturers and caretakers and men by their nature and their wiring quote unquote spread the seed you know the seed is thousand a minute you know it's cheap <laughs> that's why they treat it cheaply our egg comes once a month it's precious we only have a limited little supply you know it's at birth within our mother's womb you know it's already there the number of eggs she will pass on so these eggs are coveted they are precious and when they go, when they die out of our body, they're gone. Men can keep proliferating that seed till the 80s. That creates a different agenda. You know, that, that horny old man is a, is, is a real thing because he's got a different biological agenda. You know, we enter our menopause, we women, you look at most women, cut the hair off. They're like, forget looking good anymore. We're now finally gonna be more authentic. No problem. But men aren't shutting down in the same way. We're shutting down and rebirthing in different ways. Men are carrying on. Their biology stays kind of at peak. It's, it's certainly not its peak, but it's definitely not at the bottom, you know. So we have different sexual agendas. And understanding that will help us teach our sons about their raging sexuality in adolescence, will help us teach them not to be ashamed of it. 
and will help them to come out of the undercover so that they can harness their sexuality with consciousness. But men are shamed as well. We are shamed, they are shamed. So they're undercover operating in the basement or in their car, you know, looking at porn in their car. I had a client, a woman in her 70s, she was absolutely wounded, devastated, because she caught her 74-year-old husband in the basement, I don't mean to laugh, watching porn you know, getting excited. She thought it was the end of her marriage. You know, I had to really calm her down. You know, he has some needs and I'm not condoning it. I'm saying, just understand he's not the devil. You know, that's all, you know, whether he does it this way or that way, that's up for grabs, but there's a different need. And because our culture is so anti-sexual, so anti-pleasure, so anti-honesty around this, we will have constant, quote unquote, cheating, constant betrayal because it's not sex is not out of the closet. Yeah. And I, I think that you talk about in the book, you talk about this idea of, you know, the golden egg and you've you've alluded to it a little bit with what you're talking about here. And I, um, I'll also uh, credit Dr. Christiane Northrup, who talks about a very similar concept called egg wisdom. And it's this idea that we just produce one egg every, we have a limited amount and it de- like declines with age. And, you know, as you said, like men, you know, over the course of a month, you know, we produce one freaking egg, like guys, like how many in a month, like Billions of no, a day, you know, a day, a day, a day, every day, every day. And that's men. why we, yeah, for men. And that's yeah. why we're so upset when they're hungry, quote unquote, hungry. And we're like, you're hungry again. Right. 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 Because and they're constantly are- producing new sperm, which creates a biological desire in them that is out of their control. That's why the penis sometimes jokingly is called the second brain, but there's some wisdom there because yeah. it's functioning kind of on its own autonomy producing these sperm that make the men feel all sorts of ways. You know, ask a man how many erections, mini erections he has a day. If he's really honest, he'll say a dozen. You know, that changes their psychology. Imagine being hungry, us being hungry. You know how we get cranky, irritable. And during our our, uh, menstruation, oh my God, we're completely out of control and we need everyone to understand. I'm just saying, I'm not condoning because the feminists will be all up on me. I'm not condoning. I'm just saying, let's understand that men also have hormonal fluctuations of testosterone levels elevating and dipping. You know, see a man after he has orgasm and see a man when he is hungry for an orgasm. Vast difference. It plays on their psyche, just like when we have had our period, suddenly we're different people, right? And we're like, I don't know, blame the period. But if the men talk about our period, we get upset, right? We're like, don't blame my period. I'm really honestly emotional because I have been feeling this way for a long time. And the man is like, but how come every 20th of the month you bring it up, right? And we don't like it. We don't like to own that our hormones have an effect. You know this better than me. But when you begin to honor your own hormonal wacko wackiness, you'll begin to understand why men are wacko wacky 24 seven. Now we get it, why they're angry all the time because their hormones are out of control and no one is teaching them how to honor their feelings and honor their sexuality. 
Yes. And I think that any woman who's, you know, maybe who's still struggling, like, just as you said, you know, we see these hormonal fluctuations through our reproductive years, and then we have perimenopause and menopause. So to, to underscore the importance of hormones on behavior, like I have never, you know, been a man, I don't know what that experience is like, but I can begin to get closer to understanding it because I myself have hormonal fluctuations. So in my understanding of the hormonal impact, impact on my mood, sleep, libido, appetite, body composition. I can now understand why, you know, a guy might look at a, look at a girl or, you know, and I'm not saying that this is like a free pass to go to the strip club. And like, I'm not saying that as you're like, I'm not condoning it, but once we begin to understand it, then you can have more authentic uh, conversations with your partner and figure out if, if there is a partner uh, and figure out how you can come together in a way that honors both of your um, forms and your biology and your needs. Yes. And women need to see how repressed we have been toward our own bodies and our vaginas. And we've been taught good girls don't touch themselves, don't pleasure themselves, don't want pleasure. So here you have men who are shamed and act out in all sorts of perverted ways because they don't have clear channels. And here you have the female who's been so conditioned to be disconnected from her body and be repressed. So women, we women don't even know what our sexual possibility is. You know, I refuse to believe that we do until we've been liberated, until we've gone out and experimented, you know, but we've been told good girls don't do that. So we should just get married and be with one person because that's virtuous. So now we are repressed and cut off. The guy is not understanding his sexuality. The two clash. Eventually, somebody is going to stray emotionally or sexually, and then there's going to be a calamity. You know? yeah. So let's talk about owning our vaginas. Let's talk about owning our sensuality. And if I, may I read uh, a short passage from your book because it's so beautiful. I thought it was such a beautiful description of what a vagina is and does. So in the book you say, in its design, our vagina holds the capacity to be the receiver of the man's penis and the portal for the birth of the next generation. It is passive in that it's the receiver and yet active in that it is vital for the birth of our children. In its dual role, it entertains the dance of inaction and action, receiving and giving, pulling and pushing. This dance comes naturally to us. And I thought that that was so perfect. And it's so contrarian, as you were saying, to this patriarchal construct, which is just like, we are just a piece of meat, you know, the glory hole. I feel like we're just like a glory hole with lipstick. And as you were saying, like there's a lot of women, when we get into the conversation around sexuality, you know, a simple, like, do you know what you look like? Like, have you ever put a hand, like had a hand mirror and, you know, taking a look at yourself. So many women are like, oh no, like, uh, I, I can't, I don't even, I don't even. Right. I had a woman the other day tell me that she would never, it's meant only for a man. And I, I just looked at her and I said, see, this is how we perpetuate the patriarchy that we then say oppresses us. Right. So of course, enjoy with a man, enjoy with a woman, enjoy with a vibrator, enjoy with your own hands. But when we don't allow ourselves this kind of expanded consciousness, we limit our sexuality. And I know we're only talking about heterosexuality, but you know, I completely uh, love and embrace all sexuality. Um, 
And also this idea of monogamy, you know, we were not monogamous for the first uh, 200,000 years of the Homo sapien existence. Again, monogamy is a religious marital institution. And with it comes all sorts of neuroses of ownership and possession. Now, again, I'm not telling you to go be non-monogamous or monogamous. All I'm saying, it, it was not our natural way. And we were more open and had a greater consciousness around our sexuality and also more matter of fact way about it, you know? So anyway, now there's all this notion of fidelity and trust and betrayal and who puts their vagina in with which penis matters a lot. You know, like the, your penis is mine. You can't put it in any other place but mine. Okay, that's kind of, you know, lovely on one level, but really oppressive on the other level, you know? So think about it, you know, here are these institutions that bind us and it's okay if they bind us toward greater honesty, transparency and communication. If quote unquote, the traditional heterosexual male and female are not having honest talks about, you know, you know, to be blunt, do you want another vagina? Do you want another penis? How do you want me to be? How should I connect you? How should I be pleasuring you? How should I be allowing you to come to orgasm? What am I missing? What can I do more? Are you really like, okay, just looking at me all the time? Like, do you not want to look at other women ever? Like, really? Like, we should just be talking about natural things naturally without going apeshit crazy. But because ownership, possession, and control are the fundamentals of marriage, the person who looks is a cheater. That's why everyone wears sunglasses at the beach, right? I mean, many men will tell me it's so much safer to just wear sunglasses at the beach. I'm like, please wear sunglasses because I want to look at all the gorgeous women. Don't you want to look at all the gorgeous women? And I, I will freely admit that yes. a female form is a something to yes. behold and a beauty. It's a beautiful right. thing. And the latest version of the female form that believes it should be naked on the beach. Okay, now I want to look too. And if I'm with a guy and he's looking, how can he not look? So to admonish him and shame him for looking when I would look is just a blasphemy and it creates suppression and it's a more American centric thing than I believe Eurocentric, but it doesn't matter. It's a pervasive foundational thing about cheating and all our restrictions around sexuality. Well, it's funny that you talk about the beach because, you know, in whenever I'm at a North American beach, like California or Florida or whatever, always with my bikini top on. When I'm in France and Italy, they don't care. Like the top comes off and no one, like, I mean, may, maybe it's a bit more of a cultural thing, but I can, I sunbathe just with my bottoms on. And it's just like, it's just a, you know, Greece is the same thing. Like women are kind of walking around topless and it's just kind of this thing, like everything has to be covered up all the time. And we have this, you know, and there's like the Super Bowl many years ago and was it Janet Jackson? Her top came off accidentally What and she was, canceled basically. Like she was like, yep, we can't like you, everything about you is like, we can't, we can't ever associate with you ever again. And, you know, the guy who ripped it off, you know, Timberlake, Justin Timberlake was fine. He was just like, oh man, like un unscathed. Right? right. But we women do it to women, you know, and that's coming back to us. You, who's judging the women at the party? I mean, the men look and they move on, you know, men don't have that much attention. They're not noticing if you're wearing Gucci shoes or carrying a Prada bag. They don't care about your long lashes. Now, sure, they care about how, you know, how buxom you are, of course. But that's it. And they've moved on. But we 
size each other up and we judge each other. We judge each other as mothers. You know, we judge each other as to how loyal we are. You know, if we're scared to tell our female friends about our sexual fantasies, how many times do women talk honestly about their orgasms or about whether they want to cheat on their husbands in fantasy even? We don't have honest discussions. So these are the ways we complicitly abide by our own uh, suppression because by competing against each other, we pitch against each other. And as much as we are divided, the patriarchy will stay stronger. Yeah. So if yeah. we want to topple the patriarchy, so to speak, we need to take each other's side. We need to stop out competing each other. You know, a little bit of mascara, a little bit of lipstick, slap on some nice clothes, but that's it. I mean, the extent to which we're going to date to morph our body bodies to look like alien zombies from Star Wars. I mean, what are we doing? Now we're leaving the rest of us who have quote unquote normal body bodies feeling completely ugly, you know, so to speak. Ugly is a judgment. So I, I use it just, uh, you know, in free speech. It's just making us feel ordinary, but we have regular bodies. We're supposed to be ordinary. We're supposed to be, and we are teaching men in our own subtle ways to get used to these supersonic bodies. And then we're upset that they like supersonic bodies. You understand? Like we're doing it, you know, but if we all made this pact, which I just wish one day we could globally make to, if you really want to teach men a lesson, show up how you show up in your house and they will get used to you without makeup, without fancy shoes, and with boobs that go to your knees. Then when your boobs go to your navel, you're like, wow, look, what an amazing body you have, right? (laughs) Standard, realistic. We are making the standard so unrealistic that ordinary is now quote unquote ugly. How is ordinary ugly? I don't get it, right? But we women are doing it to each other. So we need to all make a pact, okay? None of us do this. None of us do, we only do these five things. Then we're all even playing field, you know? I agree. And I think that that's part of what what the inception of Hello Betty, my female collective is about. It's something where I want women to feel safe to be themselves, to have real discussions and conversations like this. I think this is so important for us to, you know, for everybody that's listening to this on the podcast and for those of the, those of you that are listening to this live um, inside Hello Betty, this is an opportunity for you to start questioning your own beliefs and how you've shown up and maybe the, the stories that you have, um, you know, uh, taken in and that you continue to propagate right? And I want to just circle back to um, pleasure. And uh, I want to talk about vaginas a little bit more if you're okay with it. Because, I can see. Okay. Because one of the things that I think will help all, everybody across the board, male, female, and everything in between is to own your pleasure. And one of the things that I talk about in the book, and you talk about this as well in A Radical Awakening, is when you take, when you allow yourself to for in in the sexual realm to give yourself orgasms to feel good to experience joy in your body it's when you are connected to that pleasure center so we're talking about the vulva the clitoris and orgasms there are other ways to bring joy into your life but just in this in this realm that also that connection to yourself then allows you to be more connected to 
other people. It's not, again, it's like divorcing yourself from, I am just here to serve someone else, but no, I am going to take back my own power. I'm going to give myself pleasure because I'm worthy of feeling this way. And then when I have my cuppeth runneth over, you know, then I can give, uh, and be, and, and serve and be connected to other people. What are your thoughts on that? Or do you have any... But good girls, again, just returning to that archetype, are supposed to be selfless. And so it goes so against what religion and culture has taught us to be good. We are supposed to be martyrs and victims. And, you know, we're perpetually supposed to be in the in the giving position. So now to take pleasure is so rebellious against that idea. And that's why it creates conflict against us, you know? And so we don't speak up. We don't own our space. We don't own our voice. We don't direct people onto how to meet our needs. And then our cup is empty. And then we are resentful. And then we are competitive and insecure. And the fear cycle and blame and shame cycle continue. So when you begin to own your pleasure, you know, with your children, with your partners, with your purpose, to the degree you can. Sometimes we just have to pay the bills, you know, no pleasure in that, but fine. But to the degree that you can, to get off the pedestal of martyrdom and perfectionism that we put on our shoulders and just cut it out, you know, say, I want, I need, I like, I love, I don't like. I mean, it's literally learning basic language. I had to relearn base can I just I just tell myself can you just say that you don't like something I mean it would go through such a churning process because I was so afraid of hurting someone to tell them no I don't like I don't like I don't want I don't need goodbye so difficult for us to do that because we are trained to be people pleasers and givers Yeah. And this is where boundaries come in. And I think in order for you to be able to say, I like, I need, I want, you need to be able to answer the question, who am I? And you need to be able to, um, pay attention to your desires. And we did a training a couple months ago inside Hello Betty on desires. And there was initially like some, like some people were like, I'm so scared of this. Like what if I let it in? What if I let the pleasure in? Isn't the other shoe going to drop? I'm so scared about this. Right, right, right. So just two things I want to say to tie this up for this moment is that even in our sexual pleasure, right, there's such a divorce, you know, we don't even know whether we are gay or straight. We really don't, you know, good for the gay people, they know, but the straight people, I really doubt, you know, whether we're really straight. Or, and I remembered asking my daughter at 13 or 14, you know, leave it open to you possibly liking girls. And she was so, you know, shocked I said that and confused. And I wanted to confuse her because I wanted to shake the, predominant narrative that you don't know whether you're gay or straight or bi. Like, how do you know? You know, she's like, I like boys. I'm like, yeah, but you don't know. You just like them today. Right. So leave it open. And, and, you know, now she jokes with me because she's decided she likes boys, but I'm not so impressed. I'm like, it could change tomorrow. Leave it open. You don't know who will show up in your life. You know, the right woman with the right masculine energy could be better than the right guy with the wrong masculine energy. So wait and see. So just 
you know, shaking that narrative is so important so that you go on a quest and you 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 don't just predetermine your sexuality. You allow it to be open. How do you know you only want one man for the rest of your life? Maybe you need 10 more. Maybe you like the man and the 10 girls. I know this could be very shocking for people, but we need to get over it, you know, mm-hmm. and just start enjoying our sexuality and allow it to have many flavors and and faces. The number two thing I want to say is we talked about archetypes. I don't want you to just forget, you know, forget to mention it because I think people must be wondering what are the archetypes. So let's just mention them. Let's talk about them. Yeah. Let's go. I have them in my notes. Let's talk. Yeah. So I talk about the three main archetypes of the giver, the controller and the taker. I literally am every one of them. And so they're not so cookie cutter, right? So the giver typically is one who finds her definition of who she is through the giving, right? And she then becomes the victim because she gives too much. She's the martyr because she does too much. She's the savior because she rescues everybody. And she's the bleeding empath because she feels everybody's pain. So this is a typical archetype. And I talk about it. I deconstruct it. I give examples. And then you have the controller who could also be a giver, but mostly a controller. And the controller is slightly different. So the controller is somebody who gets her sense of self through her management, through her competency. They like to feel competent. So just like givers want to show the world how good they are, controllers want to show the world how smart and competent they are, right? So the controller wants to control their life situation because they're basically really anxious. And so their controlling shows up in perfectionism, helicoptering everybody's life and business, getting into everybody's lane, or becoming a tyrant, or becoming the shield. The shield is that superwoman, you know, who shows no emotion. You're the one who you call for directions, the one who you call for the best medicine in town, the one you call for recommendations. She just got, she's got her shit together. You know, she's the modern day walking phenomenon of know-it-all, but she bears a price. She doesn't show her feelings. She learned early that she needs to do it all, be it all and be everything for everybody. So she learns to control her life that way. And then you have the takers. Now the taker is somebody nobody wants to identify with, right? Because we are the giver. But let me tell you, this taker syndrome is in all of us. It's just really, really buried. So the first taker is the diva. And the minute you become famous or get some attention, watch how you all become the divas, okay? You know, so when when I go for talks, I also can watch my little diva like, oh, they didn't even put a bottle of water, right? Because I'm at that level of diva. But if I was J-Lo, I would be like, oh, they didn't put my champagne and they didn't put my caviar, right? So it depends what level of diva you are. But you begin to notice this diva energy of like, hello, can you wait on me? Like, what about me, right? And that comes from deep insecurity for not taking charge. So At our core, because we were raised to follow, we have lost that self-authority. You know, I talk about sovereignty and becoming a queen in your life. Well, the queen has a lot of responsibility. She needs to lead the way. We have this counter energy of the taker within us, which is this kind of like, oh, you know, daddy's favorite girl or the princess waiting for Prince Charming. So the princess who just wants to be waiting, you know, we all have that secret fantasy, okay? And what it implies is that we don't want to really take ownership of our lives. You know, that's what we call it. We love being pampered. And, you know, you'd rarely hear a man talking like that, you know, because they have different archetypes. 
We have these archetypes because it comes from this subtle, old, archaic passivity. You know, we just want to just be taken care of, which is beautiful in a way, but it comes from this giving up of our power to the external world. So these are the archetypes. I talk about it in detail. And, and when you resonate with one more than others, then you can pay attention to how this shows up in your life as a pattern. Like my two most important, and maybe Stephanie, you can think about your two most important. My two most important are the savior, which is why I'm a therapist and um, the bleeding empath, right? So I can't bear people being in pain. So even as a child, if I would see people in the rain in, on, at a bus stop, I wanted to go help them, you know, like give them money or give them a ride. And I used to offend people by offering when they weren't asking, you know, but I thought that their pain was too much for them. So I wanted to take away their pain. So that those are mine. Did you figure out what yours are? I am also um, the savior. And I think that a lot of uh, healthcare professionals can, when they read this book, will really identify with wanting to, you know, for me, it's, I want to help women. I want to empower women and help them take back their, you know, I want this, you know, so I'm the savior. And I couldn't decide if I was either the perfectionist or the shield. Cause I, I struggle with my, emo like I struggle with yeah. when I have an emotional I'm feeling duress. I don't feel like I can express them freely, you know, and I, I've talked about this on podcasts where there's a certain, when you, when you reach a certain level of success, there's like a smaller and smaller pool of women, you know, talking, coming back to that sisterhood where you feel that you can reach out and say, Hey, you know what? I'm really struggling, you know, without, you know, um, feeling like you have someone that you can talk to. So I felt like perfectionist slash shield and then the savior uh, were yeah. mine. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. Yeah. So people can read this and identify. And then the freeing thing about it is you begin to notice it everywhere. And it doesn't mean you need to get rid of it, but you certainly need to see how it's a face of your false self because that's your default. And you have to always ask, is this true for me right now? Why am I doing this? Is it because I'm afraid of something, right? So I rescue because I'm afraid that the other person can't handle it. You know, so I had to learn as a therapist, I'm sure you had to learn as a doctor as well. We have to learn to let people kind of go on their journey and suffer the pain. We can't take away everyone's pain. That's our grandiose narcissism that we have because we, we, feel, we don't want to be helpless, you know? Yeah. Every person, Shafali, needs this. Every, every person, you know, man, woman, everything, ev everyone needs this it's by far, like I said, the, you know, favorite book I've read this year. Um, and we are going to be uh, releasing this in May to coincide with the release of A Radical Awakening when it comes out uh, May 18th. Um, can you tell us a little bit, I know that you also have a very similar membership um, to Hello Betty. Uh, you, it's called Luminous. Can you tell people about Luminous and then where people want to, you know, if they want to find you, they want to work yeah. with you, like tell us all of the places that we can interact and, um, and, and love. Thank you. So this podcast is being birthed the same week as my book, A Radical Awakening is being birthed. So I really appreciate all of you listening. And I am doing a 10 day deep dive course. So if people go to aradicalawakening.com, they can look up the 10 day deep dive course. It comes with three books. So I hope you'll join me on this adventure together where I take women 
through the book and the journey toward their own awakening. And then, like you said, I have a sisterhood community called Luminous, uh, and we meet every Monday night. We're going to meet tonight, and we uh, go through the same kinds of things that you talk about. We go on fitness challenges. We talk about sexuality and what women go through, relationships. And then for people who really want to do this work professionally, I have a coaching institute where I train people to do the work I do. So again, thank you, Betty community, for allowing me into your hearts and Stephanie for being so gracious and supporting my book. This has been such a great, uh, such a treat for my Bettys. I know that the chat, I haven't been watching it, but I can see it blowing up. People are loving this conversation. And thank you for your time and your presence and your your wisdom. I mean, you what you have put together in this book is really a manifesto for how we can truly empower each other and to create the reality that we want to live in. So I thank you for writing it. And um, yeah, I'm really like, cheers to your success and, uh, and to our friendship. I'm very, very lucky to have you as a friend as well. Thank you so much. Okay, Bettys, that was my conversation with Dr. Shafali Tsabari. And what I wanted to do as I leave you to muddle over the conversation that you just listened to was to leave you with a review that came in from Canada, the motherland or where at least where I have um, grown up. And this was from Rally's Farmat. And she left this review in May. And this is what she said. It's phenomenally educational. I've learned more about the female physique in three podcasts than my entire 49 years of life. It's certainly a life-changing experience to understand what is happening in your body. Dr. Stephanie and her guests deliver complex information in comprehensible language. This is this now can be adopted into everyday life. So I just want to thank you. I know that you all, uh, as this podcast grows, we are starting to see really an exponential curve in our growth, but I still read every single comment, every single review that comes in, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so far we haven't had any ugly <laughs> reviews. Uh, there have been some uh, slightly, you know, maybe something about uh, noise or something about the audio or whatnot. But uh, for the most part, everything has been incredibly positive. And I read every single one and I use this information to better myself because I live by the philosophy of this podcast. And I wanted to thank you every single one of you that have ever left a review. I read every single one of them. I'm so appreciative of you spending time to do this and it helps other Bettys find us. And, you know, if, you know, Rally's Farmette, you know, learned more in three podcasts um, than she ever has. There are other people just like her that we can help. So as much as you are able to please leave a review on the pod, leave it a five-star review. If you're on iTunes or a review on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast and it just helps more Bettys find their way home. So with that, I bid you adieu and we will see you later on this week for Geeky Magic. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 